brace myself for not only the increase in humidity as I pass through the arcade's automated doors, but also the crowded stink that permeates everything dirt side. Leaving the arcade behind, I walk the cramped streets of the terrestrial district. Mile-tall towers hulk overhead, blocking any possibility of natural light filtering down. New Earth's just one of the domed cities around the world, shielding humanity from the elements that rage on the other side of the glass. After too many years of storm-leveled towns, receding coastlines, drought, flood, pollution, and devastating fighting over food and resources as governments tried to provide for their people, domed cities became our only option to escape the ravages of a world that had finally turned against us after so many years of abuse. While everyone in New Worth is granted equal protection from the hostile environment outside, our lives inside the dome are dictated by status, credit balances, and career potential. Those with the right credentials have every advantage as they literally ascend through society, living out their lives in the city's luxurious upper levels. Everyone else remains landlocked in the terrestrial district, choked off from light constrained by space, and constantly inundated by others tied to the same fate. The one bright spot on the horizon is emergence, the day when the glass can finally come down and we return to the land of our ancestors. So, as we wait for our rehabilitation efforts beyond the dome to take root, Implants not only help us pass the time, but also make our lives a bit more bearable. With a simple iCast command, I can filter out the incessant noise down here. No more crying babies or shrieking feral children. No more desperate pitches from beggars with homebrew credit transfer devices clutched in their bare hands. Or the aggressive advertising jingles piped out of every storefront. No windy grumble from the maglev tracks crisscrossing overhead, or the creaking drone of air ventilation shafts that pump cool air into the canopy. The resulting relative silence gives you the space to think, something I didn't know I needed until I got outfitted with my implant at age 10. The smells are harder to get rid of, requiring expensive implant add-ons or body modifications. Most people learn to live with it. There was a time I was nose-blind to it all, but my time in the canopy has since put an end to that. Crowds trickle along, eddying at intersections or swirling around busy storefronts as garbage bots and far too many people fight their way through the constant gloom. The government keeps saying they want to clean things up, but with buildings constantly being appropriated to better support the understory and, by extension, the canopy above, instead of something useful like retrofitting them for capsule residences to accommodate the waiting lists, life in the terrestrial district can only continue to degrade. There are far too many people stuck down here for it not to. Following someone through a crowd, especially in the lower levels, isn't difficult with the sheer numbers of us out and about. But when the people thin out, and there's less of a buffer between you and your quarry, 
it's a lot harder to go unnoticed. Something I've learned the hard way, shadowing Breck these last few weeks. One wrong move, game over. But this is no game. Hello and welcome to this episode of Fractopia. Today's show features an extended interview with Lauren Tefoe, author of the recently released near-future novel Implanted, published by Angry Robot. Implanted tells the story of Emery Driscoll, a college student and data curator who gets embroiled in the clandestine affairs of a secret organization charged with delivering sensitive data around the domed city of New Worth in a fractopian future world racked by climate change and political tension. Over the course of an hour, Lauren and I covered a variety of topics, both directly and indirectly related to the setting and technology described in the novel, including such wide-ranging issues as digital convergence, neural implant technology, online privacy, climate change, the law of digital recency, and the future of capitalism. So, you have a bachelor's degree in English, a master's degree in mass communications, and this is your debut novel, although I see that you're you're also... Uh, a member of some kind of prestigious writers groups. So how did that happen? It seems a little cart before the horse. <laughs> it feels that way. Um, but I would just, well, we can get into that later. But uh, yeah, so basically um, I am a member of Science Fiction Writers of America. I'm also a full member of Romance Writers of America. Um, and then my local chapter, uh, which is very active in New Mexico here. Um, but then also, uh, back in 2012, I was, went to, um, I applied and got into Taos Toolbox, which is a two-week master class in writing science fiction in Tennessee. Um, and uh, after those two weeks, um, I met a lot of people that um, have now become sort of my writing cohort. Um, and then also I met Walter John Williams, who runs this workshop. And um, in, here in New Mexico, there's a, I guess, an enclave of, of professional writers here all writing science fiction or fantasy or some sort of speculative works and he advocated for my entry into that group um so i just i think at that point just had a couple of uh, short story sales under my belt um but since joining that group and being involved in the community that's really helped tremendously in terms of workshopping my work strengthening my craft and uh, preparing me for a publishing career Walter John Williams is a great name to have on your side. That's quite a coup. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and it's, you know, by virtue of the fact that, um, you know, we, uh, I guess nine years ago now is when we moved out here to New Mexico. So, um, yeah, there's, it just, this area, I think, just tends to, to grab a hold of, of the right of the sort. There's, there is something about the Southwest. Now, so, how long were you working on Implanted? It depends on how you're counting. 
Um, if we're just talking about in terms of, you know, starting the, what became the, the, the draft of this novel, then I, but what I've been saying is about two years, uh, off and on, um, and I had a kid somewhere in there as well. So <laughs> there's a lot going on. There's a kid somewhere in there. Yes. It, um, and then I think I went back with my agent in terms of edits for about six months, and then we're on submission for about six months. Um, so that's like another build in another year, and then I guess it was maybe eight to ten months. I think in terms of the production and in terms of selling it to Angry Robot, and then pub- and then Angry Robot that published it. Uh, but if we're not counting that, if we're talking about the ideas of the story, then I, that goes back to when I was at. University of Illinois as a researcher. Um, I had gotten my master's degree in MESCOM, as we talked about, and so there I um, was basically focusing on um, social science research methods, first of all. That was what my, my, back, my formal background is in. Uh, and then a lot of, you know, how do people, you know, use mass communication? How do they, um, how do we see it play out in terms of the media formats? Uh, internet obviously was a huge kind of component in that as well and a lot of like critical cultural theory studies and things like that um, so that was all kind of my uh, academic background then when I went to University of Illinois as a researcher um, I was in the library science graduate program there managing research projects so we were looking at the impact of libraries on um, the public we were looking at the impact of academic libraries on both graduate students and professors um, and how they do their research. We were looking at how um, the move to digitize resources, both in terms of library holdings and then also um, the information that those holdings contain, how that uh, impacted how people engaged the material. And um, so all of that kind of led to this kind of information science um, piece that kind of leads into the both book, um, but also just in that environment. While on paper it kind of looked like a good fit for me, um, I, I didn't like I didn't like my job. I didn't. <laughs> I liked parts of the job. I liked the intellectual engagement. I liked how it tied into things that I studied formally, um, and some of the projects were really really cool, but. I, I could just tell that if I wanted to stay in academia, I needed to get a PhD. And if I wanted to get a PhD, I'd have to like study just one thing to like such minute detail that just, just I don't know, it gave me the willies because it. I wanted to kind of explore outward, and with PhD, you explore inward on just one thing. And I thought that was going to be very limiting. Uh huh. You know the the popular saying, "Jack of all trades, master of none." And I, yeah. I recently heard that there's actually a second line to that. Uh, Jack of all trades, master of none, but better than a master of one. <gasps> Is, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yes, that, that would have been so much more helpful because I kept coming back to that kind of thing. And I'm like, like yeah, I, wanna, I just want to learn everything. Um, so Typical writer. Right. So because I was so miserable... In that situation, I started building this world of the worth because I was learning all this stuff about how digital information was kind of changing, how it engaged with things that I was like, well, let's, let's do a thought experiment as to like what this would look like if we kind of kept following out the trajectory of some of these things. New Earth kind of 
genes became that test bed. And that is that is a very fractopian idea right there. It was about two years ago um, for me as well when I started looking at uh, the digital technology, AI, AR, the convergence of these technologies. Now, I, I had been interested in digital technology for a long time. I've been a web developer since the 90s. Uh, I used to uh, edit a, a garage-based VR magazine. That was, again, back in the 90s. And so these have always been deep interests for me. But just two years ago, it, it, it came to me that, you know, it's harder to predict the future now than it ever has been. And one of the reasons is because we've got so many new technologies that are all going to affect each other as they converge. And right. so the whole Fractopian project is an attempt to look forward both in research fact, and, but also in fiction, uh, to bring in more minds and try to suss out how these interacting or converging technologies will affect each other. Yeah, and I think that's the difficulty, right? Because it's real easy to say, okay, like, you know, broadcast TV, you know, changed all along all these, all these matrices or whatever. But because we're, like you said, all, all these competing things that are happening all at once, and then it becomes a lot more unstable system, as we're seeing, and also a lot more unpredictable. Absolutely. It is a non-linear progression. Multiple non-linear progressions all, <laughs> all happening at once. So I, I also noticed that, that the word you used in your background was data curation, and, of course, that's Emery's job in the book. So, Yes. Uh, is, is Emery a little autobiographical? Or is it just that you decided to put her in your place? So, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, I wouldn't say autobiographical in that sense. There's other aspects of memory that I identify with more so than the data creation thing. But it, it became kind of a, a way for me to talk about the things I wanted to talk about with this book because she has that background. Um, particularly the stuff about the law of digital recency and some of the effects that she has to navigate uh, of this environment with the digitization of information. That's, an, that's actually a, an, an important but kind of subtle detail of the book. Could you explain for our listeners what you mean when you say the law of digital recency? Yes. So basically there's this um, assumed tenant of her world where um, it, it depends on how people interpret it, but for purposes of this particular piece, it's um, in the digital the digital environment is so captivating that you have to guard against that attraction to the digital world without losing track of where you are in the physical world. Um, and so they so they call it the law of digital recency, where you know you have to be on your guard and um, know that your attention's being pulled in a couple different directions. And that, that leads to this, um, some of these effects that um, you have to then guard against or, or plan for or navigate around. Um, and as her job as a courier, when everyone has a neural implant that can conceivably distract them from, like, say, their commute to, to, the, to the office or whatever, that means they're not necessarily paying attention to somebody who picks their pocket, for an example because they are so engaged with their um, emotional, mental world than they are with the physical environment around them. So that's just one example that um, comes up. And so as a courier who's supposed to be paying attention to her surroundings, she can kind of know that 
there's a certain level of the law of digital recency in effect where she, she will be unnoticed because people will be so distracted by the digital environment. So we see this effect happening today. Um, you know, Correct. Facebook, Twitter, things pop up and they, they come so quickly, they come so frequently and, and one after the other that it is easy to forget whatever last week's outrage was. But uh, in the book, you're really talking about something that happens more on a moment-by-moment basis, yeah? Yes. Yes, the outrage machine. <laughs> that didn't exist when I was writing this book. Um, I, it's kind of one of those things where I feel like at the time, because this has been so long in development, that I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to be on the forefront of all this stuff. And now it feels like I've just caught the tail end of it <laughs> just because of this last couple of years and the way we've seen social media kind of harnessed for good and ill and um, the results of, of, of that. Um, so I think people are finally like c- catching on to the fact that, oh yeah, there's some issues here that we didn't plan for and, of, and people are actively exploiting as opposed to, hey, this is a thing that could happen. It's mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. And this becomes this becomes actually an important tactical asset for uh, for Emmy's employers and clients. Uh, the fact that people can quickly forget uh, who she was to them, or what she was doing, or what their previous lives were about, uh, actually gives her an advantage moving about in this environment. Uh, there's a part in the book where you you mentioned just kind of in passing what you called a digital fugue. Yes. Uh, voluntarily purging all your old contacts and starting over? Where did that idea come from? Uh, I came from, well... Did it come from Elon Musk telling everyone to delete their Facebook? No, this, this, <laughs> this, was, this has been online in the book for much longer than Elon Musk has been a media darling. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I try to get, kind of get at the sense of this idea of disconnecting from social media, but also kind of indicating how much of a big of a change that would be in this particular world where it wouldn't it where we talked about like at some point you know it's a there's a digital death here with a digital fugue it's like you're 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 not just you're not dying per se but you are kind of disassociating from all your your markers in this in this environment so it is like you've experienced a fugue fugue state where you are still operating as you but all the all the connections, all the um, all the ties are have been cut, severed. It is it's a it's a fascinating world, and I think that the biggest jump, probably, I mean, the the biggest stretch or technological advance made in the book is the implants themselves and how they work. And you do a good job of, of describing uh, thought text. Right, like the idea of sending people your thoughts, and they appear as as text in a in a AR display for the other person. Yes, is, is this that's a, a that's what I'm going for? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so it's kind of a a a one to one Twitter interface, an AR Twitter. Yeah, very much so. Um, you know, even Snapchat because of the way that the Twitter stays. Right, there's a record of it. Snapchat, it disappears after a certain number of time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, I was going more for that, even though the user could customize which thoughts get saved or not, 
depending on how their agreement works out with the other user. There's a passage in the book where you're talking about thought text, uh, and you say that thought text by its very nature is temporary, lasting only long enough for the recipient to acknowledge it, uh, an imperfect compromise to keep citizens' lives private. And then the next sentence is, but I guess privacy has no place in a police inquiry. Uh, privacy has no place in a in a media-saturated marketing ecology either, it, it seems. But you had been writing these things long before the the Facebook, uh, was it Cambridge Analytica? Is that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Before they started the micro-targeting. Right. Yeah, Yeah, no, this was all, this all pre, this was in production well before all that came out. Um, It's scary. (laughs) So Um, thinking about it from, from way back then, I mean, this is, this is sort of prescient and you don't get into marketing a lot in the book. You mentioned there, there are advertisements and it's, it's a little bit ubiquitous. You don't get into it a whole lot, but this also leads into the, the notion of privacy and people mining your thoughts. Where did that thought come from? How were you thinking when you started writing this? Did you, did you see where this was going? Sure. So, it's, I kind of did a little bit of a, I kind of wrote it in the, I, we, we can't put the genie back in the bottle in terms of some of these things, in terms of social media, the convenience of having these interactions on a, a mediated way, te- te- technologically mediated way. So, um, I thought, well, I want to write at least like an ideal communication um, interface that does account for privacy or at least makes an attempt at privacy that does provide some more effective means of um, dealing with abuse, for example, um, and abusive interactions um, without sacrificing the benefits that come from these kinds of connections. So, that's why there is such fine-grained control based on what a user wants in terms of their interactions via these implants. And it's why um, there are so many levels of um, types of interactions you can have, whether it's um, the thought text, whether it's an, uh, an asynchronous, um, uh, just a formal kind of email type response as opposed to the, the, the thought the thought kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's just lots of ways that the user can kind of customize it to their needs, but then there's also, you know, it's, I, you know, I might want to send you like all of my feelings in addition to my thoughts, in addition to all this stuff, but you, you can still say, no, I only want this part of that, that signal here. Um, so it's, it's not just what the user wants to give out. It's also what the next other person wants to accept and all of that. So, a two-way control system. Two-way control system, in addition to what the technology allows, in addition to what this society has been evolved to kind of want and accept. Um, whereas I feel like currently part of the issues are these platforms don't give you enough fine-grained control. They, they, you know, like if we're going to talk about Twitter, I mean, you can block, you can mute. There's certain things like that, but there's still ways around that, and there's still... Um, it's still an imperfect system, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And plus, it's, it's sexy as hell. People are going to want to go for it. I mean, I every day I get someone sending me the, the latest 
you know, which character from Supernatural are you or whatever. And of course, every time you connect to one of those polls, Facebook's getting your data, this other company is getting your data, and you're connecting to your friends, they're getting your friends' data too. Right. And so my goal was with the implants in New Worth is they already know enough about how people kind of interact with these these things that they don't need to be stealing everyone's data where it's a little more of a closed system um, for your own personal data. Um, but they also have ideas on what data is okay to share and what's not. Um, yeah. Plus on top of that, again, just kind of implied in the book, but I know that uh, Emery has her own personal account or whatever it is that you want to call it. But at one point you also mentioned how she has her arcade account, which is a separate account. So would you imagine people, most people having multiple accounts, maybe setting up artificial personas? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, I mean, that's like a natural, well, I don't know if it's a natural thing, but it's certainly within the parameters of what this society sets up and there can be different reasons for those kinds of things. Um, For Emery's case, you know, she has her arcades profile, which I think just by its very nature does allow for that, the persona or, you know, the, the, that, that side of that person um, who does the arcades is not the same person who goes to the office every day, you know, so that there's there's that kind of separation of self. Um, But I can see also just um, if somebody's out and about, maybe they don't want to be broadcasting their name and their, their occupation, you know, maybe they just want to be left alone. So um, there's more flexibility in terms of what, um, what is broadcast and what isn't. Um, And there's certainly more applications as to what parts of a person um, kind of go into these like subsystems kind of thing. That said, there's still the registry, which um, everyone's information is in, um, in terms of, like, I guess, um, vital statistics kind of, kind of thing. Uh, police records, uh, county records, anything publicly available, the kind of stuff that you could go through the court and discover about a person today? Essentially, yes. Um, yeah, I would say so. So bringing this back to the real world and just sort of projecting forward a little bit, how how realistic of a solution do you do you see this as being? Is this perhaps where we'll end up going rather than shutting ourselves off from each other? Because like you said, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. But perhaps one way to keep our uh, our privacy relatively safe would be to silo different aspects of our life, like vertically, as it were. Yeah, I think I think we have to find some way of either distributing the information or, like you said, siloing it off and just knowing that, like, if you're in a restaurant, your restaurant profile is what all you can access. Or if you're in the arcade, your, your video game profile is all you can access. So, like, there's ways of kind of segmenting out aspects of your life so that nobody sees the complete picture or there's making harder decisions about what um, we do or don't share or uh, access digitally. Um, and I think, I think there's nothing preventing us from doing some of these more um, technological solutions. I think there's a lot more work we need to do in terms of ha- handling the sociological and cultural ones. 
Um, Absolutely, because it's extremely seductive. People are oversharing with information that back in the pre-digital days, people never would have shared this type of information. Absolutely. It's a seductive quality of information, totally. Um, and now it's like we, you get used to having that kind of stream of information, and it's very hard to, to go back. The other thing I was going to say in terms of the implants is convenience and capitalism. As long as the implants provide, make things more convenient and capitalism is still the driving force of our society, the competitive advantage is always going to be on these kinds of emerging technologies because it's, it's like squirrel, you know, like it, that's, you know, we are conditioned to follow these things and, and, um, yeah, I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think any of us can see that changing. Um, I have done a lot of activist organizing. I was an organizer for Occupy. I am a big fan. Of, I'm going to give a shout out to the Zero Books podcast. These guys produce uh, critical theory books and podcasts where they talk about the current state of the left. And probably their best-selling book was one called Capitalist Realism by a fellow named Mark Fisher, who's now dead. Uh, and he lays out in the book, following uh, some of the theories of Foucault and Deleuze, uh, that in a sense, we have internalized the logic of capitalism uh, to such a degree that it either feels natural, or perhaps we could say it, it actually is our natural tendency, to such a level where really the, the left finds no other option. There's no anti-capitalist solution yeah <laughs> I, you know people keep saying we're in like a post you know we're in like the end days of capitalism i just i, I don't know i think we're in the end days of capitalism 1.0 um yeah. but now that we've reached a now that we've reached a state where due to several there are several other factors playing in here you know there's there is the whole postmodern mindset which has removed the sense of an overarching narrative connecting us as a culture, leaving us sort of morally and ethically adrift and finding nothing but material value to share as a culture. In a way, capitalism is really the only cultural value that we can all connect on. Right. No, I, I totally see that. So now that capitalism has, which is terribly sad, um, now that we've reached that point, it no longer needs, really, to even pay much more than lip service to the idea of individual freedom, civic rights, cultural responsibility. Uh, the gloves are off in Capitalism 2.0, and we are all now commodities. We're part of the commodities, yeah. I mean, if it fixes some things, I, the problem is the bar is so low right now um, that are, you know, whether it's technocrats or whoever in terms of just improving the cost of living just a little bit and still letting people keep their iPhones and have their Netflix account. I feel like, you know, people might be happy with that. <laughs> yeah. It, it's bread and circuses and a Wi-Fi capable device. Yeah. And that's the whole reason why this society in the book is, is been given this technology essentially is, is, is a way of appeasing them from having to do this kind of traumatic um, migration into these dome cities, you know. Yeah, short of the, the end of the world. It would be very hard to imagine people voluntarily going to move 
their life under a great glass dome. Exactly. Right. Uh, there has to be there has to be some sort of carrot, you know, pulling us along. There's the carrot and there's the stick, right? Uh, the carrot pulling us along is the sexiness and the immediacy of that of that digital connection, and the 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 stick is the idea, I guess, that you'll be left out if you <laughs> if you don't do it right. You'll be left behind. You'll be a, a disconnect. Correct. And this is something that your vision shares with mine, and why I was I was so happy to to be contacted by you and and reading in your book. It just backed up that the whole idea that what you've written here, although very different from most of the other stories that I classify as fractopian, it still falls very much in that genre because we've got, it's 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 not a dystopia. Most people are actually pretty happy, right? But it's not a utopia either. There is definitely systematic abuse and uh, massive uh, dis- disparity of uh, equality and income. And this is, this is one of the things that I see, and, and again, no way around it as we head into capitalism 2.0, that our culture becomes more and more uh, stratified, that, that the gap between the rich and the poor gets greater and greater, but even the poor are slowly rising their standard of living is slowly rising. And so they can't complain about it. Again, when I was organizing for Occupy, a lot of the work that we did was on behalf of the homeless here in Nevada, um, due to the fact that Henderson was the fastest growing city in the U.S. up until about 2010, 2011, and then the housing bubble burst. Uh, So we had a whole lot of people whose houses were foreclosed upon. They were living on the street. But even the people who live on the street all the time you know what? They have smartphones. They have Facebook pages. Yep. <laughs> we, have a huge, we have a huge homeless issue here in Albuquerque. And, you know, I, I look at what they're wearing and, you know, what they have. And I'm just like, there's not that much separating them from me, except, you know, I'm the one in the car and I have the house I get to drive to. So it's, it's just outwardly, you have no idea anymore in terms of these markers that were typically indicators of status. That those are starting to collapse, even, even when, um, yeah. Obviously, there's very real differences. We had a saying in our Occupy group, like, "What's the difference between you and the homeless?" Sixty days, right? Depending on you know what's in your bank account and how long you can ride something out, or whether you run into a medical emergency or total your car, you, could, you know, or have the bank foreclose on your house, right? So. In in New Worth, they've they found a way of now. I I don't really know how to answer this question, but you tell me. <laughs> um, there is a sense of uh, potential upward mobility, right? Emery is able to change her social status if she works hard, goes to the right school. Yes. So in in New Worth, because it's a dome city, I kind of I try to decide. I mean, obviously, you know, money is still a big deal, but what would money buy you in a dome city uh, when everyone is so you you so tightly packed in? So my idea was space, but not just any space. You want primo real estate is where the sun still gets in because it's so tightly packed. So this access to sunlight becomes like a new commodity and the space to enjoy it. So the, the city's kind of then stratified into the canopy area, which is all the rich, rich and wealthy people. 
then you have the understory, which is your kind of middle class, and then you have your terrestrial district where hardly any sun reaches down because it has to pass through so many layers to get to, get to you. And that's where the real lower class um, workers and um, families live. Uh, so yes, there's this idea that if you work hard and you, you have like the right career and the right connections and everything, you will be able to live out your life in the, in the canopy. Um, so it's about making sure you have the right skills that the city needs. Um, it's who you know, and it's also what's in your bank account. Um, Which is a great uh, metaphor, but using light as the metaphor, I mean, it's, it's so simple and poignant and direct. Uh, light, the light of the sun is what, is what brings life and energy to us. Light versus dark, that, that whole spectrum appears mirrored in the social strata of the world you've created which is just like elegant, just brilliant and simple and elegant. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I was, you know, there's some things I'm like, oh, yeah, I get to pat myself on the back for <laughs> that one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, th- so she, she, you know, she, you know, she's seen her parents, you know, try to, to um, carve out careers that would have let them ascend is what they call it. Um, but it, it hasn't worked out for them. Um, and so she's like, well, it's going to be different for me. So she works really hard and she gets, into this really top school uh, to go to college. And um, she gets this career as a data curation specialist. And she's like, I've made it. I've done what I set out to do, you know. And, of course, that all is not how it appears. And, you know, she's about to um, start a new career that she, unbeknownst to her. Um, but, yes, yeah, so I wanted to kind of play with these kind of tensions. Is to, you know, because, like, right now it's, like, um, the college crisis in terms of um, – college student loans and even if you have a college degree that's no predictor of success or yeah. stability in your career and all those kinds of things so it's very much like that here um where you know you're gonna try to to make it to the canopy uh as because that's like their only kind of well do you live in the canopy is like the only kind of metric of success really um even though most people you know, live in the other two tiers of the city um and I didn't get into this in, in this part in the, in the novel. I did a lot of stuff on this on this world that didn't make it into the book. Um, but I did kind of think it was kind of there are some forces that stack that are stacked against you if you're coming from a lower district moving up. Um, they don't just let anybody in just because <laughs> you hit all the check marks that they say you hit. So. It's a classic uh, Pareto distribution. Right, like playing the game of Monopoly. Once you start winning, it becomes more likely you're going to continue winning. Once you start losing, it becomes more likely you're going to continue losing. Exactly, exactly. So there are waiting lists. You know, even if you hit all the requirements, you know, you still have to wait for a spot to open up. Kind of thing. It's a very apt metaphor for the social situation that we live in today. And of course, you know. Science fiction, even when predicting the far future, is is usually talking about the present and finding a way to use some other world as a metaphor or an extrapolation for something the author sees going on in this world. Uh, and again, this this brings me back to the notion of how implanted is is at at core a, a fractopian vision, an attempt to realistically. And this is one of the things I like about it so much because it's possible to say. We'll live in great domed cities and just make up a science fantasy 
without literally tying it to the current stream of history. But what you've produced here is follows the logic of capitalism and the stratification of society closely enough so that it's possible to see us ending up there. It's not that far ahead. Did you have a a, a year in mind? How far ahead <laughs> did you think about so, that? Yes. I did think about that. Um, I kind of pushed back at one point my agent was like well how far in the future is it and I'm like I don't want to go into that um, because well number one I think it's hard to, to I, I don't think like that so it's hard for me to kind of put like a hard date on it like you know like Kim Stanley Robinson did for like 20 for New York I don't know. yeah New York yeah I, that's hard um, for me um, I thought it was going to be a lot further out than it was after this summer <laughs> really <laughs> with how hot it's been Oh, due to the climate change issues. Due to climate change, yeah. Um, you know, because that was that. It was um, side effects to climate change that kind of forced them to kind of retreat to the cities. So you know, I was like, you know, we have time, and that was before you know some of these more recent climate reports came out. Like, if we don't change our trajectory in ten years, we're fucked. Um, so now, of course, people like then, Jeremy Ripken have been warning us since you know 1970. Well, of course. <laughs> of course. Uh, not that anybody wanted to listen, and they still don't. So, um, so yeah. So. so let's start building those domes. I think so. Honest to God, I mean, something we need to do something. I mean, we're shitting plastic out, you know. So <laughs> I read that just the other day. Yeah, I know, I know. So I, you know, something has to give, and I don't know what it's going to be, but it has to be something. Um, and I hope, I hope it's soon enough to to matter. I would, you know, have a kid. I, I want her to to enjoy all the things that I enjoy, enjoyed in my life, you know, so it's tricky. There's a, there's a statement that's quoted by Mark Fisher in Capitalist Realism, and I, I'm not sure who originally said it, but one of the people who gets credited with saying it is Slavoj Zizek, uh, and the quote is that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And that's sort of the truism that lies at the bottom of Fisher's book. And it ties into that, that whole theme about the logic of capitalism having been internalized. And of course, we see post-apocalyptic movies and books and television shows. I mean, you, you can't get away from it. It's, exactly. It's everywhere. It is absolutely everywhere. Part of the reason why I started researching this Fractopian vision was to look for an alternative. And no, it's not easy to imagine the end of capitalism. So maybe, maybe capitalism stays but we also avoid collapse somehow. And that's that's kind of the core of the Fractopian vision. You can add in different technologies, AR, VR, AI, ubiquitous advertising, drone delivery, yeah, and, you know, robotics. I mean, all these things are going to happen to one degree or another, and they're going to converge in all sorts of interesting ways. But at the at the core of it, we have the idea that, well, A, we don't destroy ourselves within the next three, four, five generations. And I'm not. I'm knocking on wood as I say that. <laughs> uh, and B that capitalism survives um, largely because it seems that we have no other choice. Right. Yeah. No. I. I mean, prior on another project, I was kind of exploring the 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 divide between you know like more like white collar computer driven industries versus like working with your hands and like how we're losing essentially this whole blue collar workforce to robotics. Mm. 
Um, but if you think about like, you know, the, the emphasis on the worker and, you know, all this stuff, I just, we have to kind of find our humanity in this capitalistic structure in order to kind of, for it to kind of move into this more successful second stage. Um, otherwise I just, you know, the, the, the mental illness, the, the dissatisfaction, the disparities, I think they're going to continue. We have to find something that not only functions just on like a, you know, obviously like a systemic way, but also just in a human way in terms of how we relate to each other, in terms of how we relate to what is considered to be work and that balance of, of living. Mm-hmm. Those French existentialists, they, they didn't know what ennui was. <laughs> well, it's funny, like, you know, I, you know, I, I did read some of these things and it's just how, how, how well they're, ca- you know, we can kind of look back to them um, now and just be like, oh shit, you know, they had this all figured out. <laughs> well, they may have had it all figured out, but so many of them ended up committing suicide. <laughs> True. True. You know, the idea that there was there was no way around uh, the commodity. There was no way around the society of the spectacle. Guy Debord committed suicide. I believe Mark Fisher himself was a suicide. Uh, it's, it's possible to get so depressed about this, and there's nothing to really hang your hopes on once postmodernism has removed the idea of God and a central culture for us all to rally around. And we end up atomized. We end up uh, uh, alone, weak, and unsure, and precariously placed individuals. Yep. Always side-eyeing our neighbors. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, this is all getting doom and gloom, but that was kind of also why I wanted to include that notion about emergence. The whole concept around emergence is, yes, um, things are shitty now, but hopefully they will be less shitty in the future, and we need to be planning and moving forward to that day where we can leave the glass behind, essentially. So, so much of the work that's being done in New Earth is for these rehabilitation efforts for the outside world, conditioning it so that the effects of climate change and war and pollution are kind of um, addressed with, so that they'll be the next generation to go outside again. And so, and so that's kind of the mythology that, um, galvanizes people to kind of get up and go each day because there's only so much, you know, the tech can do. They also have to have this like guiding mission, a a vision, a, a a teleological end. Yes. Which is really what we're lacking here today. Yes. So what comes next? Are you, do you envision a second book in this series? Have you considered that? I have, um, I have, uh, I've scoped out a couple things. It depends on, um, you know, nothing's formally, uh, you know, it depends on what, if the publisher wants another book, uh, essentially. Um, you know, the book does end, and I think there's an entire arc there, but the story and the, um, story world, I think, is rich enough where, um, there could be other stories told in this. I could absolutely see more stories coming up. Now, uh- New Worth is only one of many dome cities. Is that right? Correct. So similar stories are being played out all across what Western civilization. Yes. Basically, I was kind of locating them where um, the mega cities um, would be kind of located where those population centers were that were also 
Um, you know, I wouldn't put one on like the San Andreas Fault, for example, mm-hmm. or um, you know, too close to the ocean. I wouldn't put one in the middle of the Mojave Desert, but look where I live. <laughs> exactly. So there are there are there are pla- there you know there are places. Um, I didn't get into too much detail outside the dome because it's a it's not um, it doesn't exist as far as the network in New York is concerned. And also in terms of, you know, only certain people are getting information from those other cities uh, at, the, at the government level. And not all of that information is getting out to the rest of the population. So it was kind of a way of, um, for me, to kind of leave a few plot threads that I could play with if I get to write more stories in this story world. I love the idea. It's a it's a fascinating world, and uh, it's it's good to hear that we we may be able to see more of it in the future. Thank you. I hope so too. So, what's next for you? You know, that's a good question. Um, so, yeah, when you're writing, you know, you have lots of stories in production at various stages. So, I have a couple short stories that are coming out next year. Um, like I said, you know. We'll see if anything comes of a, another book in this world. And then I have another set of projects that I'm working on that are, that are novels, uh, ones with my agent, one I'm working on right now that is very exciting. Are these, so. are these sci-fi genre? Um, some. Some are. Um, so I, I tend to write both science fiction and a little bit of fantasy, and then the fantasy that I do write tends to be hard fantasy in terms of um, – or science fantasy in terms of having – Mm. Um, similar elements, but given that kind of like you know the, the saying you know it, any high technology is undifferentiated from magic, mm-hmm. kind of play with that kind of um, tension. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. You know, um, something something new and exciting will be coming. Um, but yeah, best way to kind of keep track of that is just checking in in my website every now and then. That's awesome, and I recommend that our listeners do that. Now, you probably uh, either read uh, Yuval Harari's latest book or at least have read some of the interviews that he's been doing lately as he's been promoting his book. And he's on this, doing this rap lately about the importance of science fiction as a predictive mechanism, as a future casting tool. And whether, and now, of course, we know that science fiction authors on the whole are tremendously bad at predicting, <laughs> predicting specific futures or specific events. But what science fiction can do is provide a, a whiteboard for us to brainstorm the potential futures that we might want to angle ourselves toward. Uh, and if I'm not misquoting him, um, he, he's recently gone on record, you know, everywhere he's, he's doing his book tour, saying that science fiction is the most important artistic genre right now. I, I truly believe that myself. I, I think so. And I think, you know, the, the larger world is finally like, figuring that out. I mean, you can just see that in terms of, you know, the things that are getting picked up right now to be adapted from our field um, in terms of new properties being developed in terms of, um, you know, the the splash that some of these stories are having. It's really great to see. So I think it's an exciting time to be writing science fiction. And I feel like, you know, some of that like literary genre um, divide, I think is also lowering as well because, uh, a friend of mine, Emily Ma, always likes to point out the fact that science fiction stories and fantasy stories, those are the ones that like 
capture minds and hearts and want people to like you know build that laser laser beam or you know build the uh you know the hard drive for the enterprise you know Mm -hmm. those are the things that kind of inspire whereas like like literary stuff you know might win awards you know i might get people talking but it's you know it's not going to have that same kind of impact that we i think you know art field has i feel like that line is blurring i'm personally not a big fan of that line between genre and literature i like to blur it as much as possible and when i think of authors like samuel delaney uh ursula le guin and really if you think about it even david foster wallace because Infinite Jest is, is actually science fiction. I mean, it deals with a piece of technology that doesn't exist yet, and it's set in the future. It is, it is harder and harder, and I say, you know, good riddance, it's harder and harder to tell exactly where that line is anymore. Another thing that I, that I like to tell my writers when working on the ubiquity line, when writing Fractopian fiction, is to try to disconsider that there's a line between science fiction and literature. Absolutely. I, I mean, I think I, I feel like it's not productive um, to have these kinds of, um, I guess, boxes. But I guess some marketer somewhere thinks it is useful. It, yeah, that's it, isn't it? it? It all comes down to marketing. Come back to capitalism. Right? <laughs> oh, wow. We start with capitalism and we end up with capitalism one way or the other. I guess so. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, that's the that's the tricky part. Um is trying to find a way to make it palatable without losing what matters to you. There are a lot of great utopian visions out there, the Venus Project, um, Jacques Fresco, and and others. And yet again, due to the, the, uh, the integration of capitalism into our lives, mindsets, and moral values, and the lack of any other moral value to guide us, it seems, it is pretty much impossible to imagine the transition to that utopian state where we have enough food to feed everybody. We have the machines that could distribute that food, but it's not going to be built. It's not going to be done. Yep. I I, I think it's, you know, obviously it's where priorities are um, and we've already shown our inability to, focus i guess um on issue one issue at a time um you're always chasing the uh recent news flash and not figuring out how to solve bigger problems oh my god we got bit by the law of digital recency (laughs) that's true that's true i think i think yeah absolutely this has been fascinating talking to you i it was it was good to stretch out beyond the bounds of the book a little bit and get your ideas about where these things came from and where these things might be going. Uh, I, I actually agree with you on, on practically everything you said regarding the future. <laughs> and, and I hope that, I hope that you'll continue pursuing this, this world, the world of new worth, whether or not Emery is the central character. I, I could go one way or the other, but the world itself is one that I find fascinating. Oh, that's so gratifying to hear. Um, you know, obviously, you know, I'm writing for me, but it always um, means something when you can reach somebody else too and have them feel what you feel. So that's great to hear. I think you did a great job. Uh, thank you for writing the book. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Fractopia. I'm your host, Todd Foley, reminding you to comment, like, subscribe, and share as feeding those important algorithms will help bring the show to a broader audience of futurists and fictioneers. If you're feeling especially warm and fuzzy, please feel free to show your support by dropping a one-time donation at thisisfractopia.com or joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash fractopia. Patrons get special perks like subscriber-only videos and long-form interviews, glimpses behind the scenes, topical polls and surveys, and invitations to participate in subscriber-only events online. If you have any ideas, suggestions, or questions, or if you're a writer of near-future fiction and would like to see your work featured in this podcast or on the website at thisisfractopia.com, please feel free to comment below or contact me via the channel of your choice. I'm always interested in conversations on these topics, and I enjoy promoting work that gives people more to think about when it comes to the foreseeable future. As always, sources and links for further reading can be found in the show notes below. Thank you.